chapter 6, verse 30. No, excuse me. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 31. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. I think today's lesson could really be condensed down into one or two very brief statements. We're living at a breakneck pace. We're just too busy. Thank you very much. (laughs) I am tempted to stop there, but I wrestle with what to do about that, and I sense that others struggle as well. And this morning, I'd like to take a biblical perspective on this fast-paced age in which we live. Some of you perhaps have heard about Catherine Alexander, who sent in a, a note to the Reader's Digest about a sign that she saw posted on the window of a restaurant in Wisconsin. The sign at that restaurant read like this, we're not fast, we're good. We're good, we're cheerful, we're courteous, but we are not fast. For fast, go to Chicago. Here we're north of the tension line, so relax, take time to smell the flowers, give us time to prepare your order with tender loving care. I think the clear message of that sign is that there are some things that cannot be prepared and served while you wait if you only have three minutes in which to wait. And yet that laid-back attitude really militates against our breakneck natures because we live with a microwave mentality where we've come to expect funeral homes to have drive through windows. We want to throw an egg into the barnyard and listen to it crow. We have to hurry up just to be late anymore. I remember hearing some fellow talk about seeing a sign on the storefront that said, Genuine Antiques Manufactured While You Wait. Need I remind you that from God's perspective in the Bible, that the Christian race is also referred to as a walk. I think there's a reason for that, and I want to examine it just for a few minutes this morning. The same Lord in the text that Jim read a moment ago, the same Lord that commands his disciples to go with a sense of urgency into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, also commanded them here in Mark chapter 6 to come aside to a deserted place and rest for a while. He recognized that those disciples had been overworked, under-rested, and so they were exhausted, they were depleted, they were fatigued, and that there was only one way to be able to address that situation, and that was to go away from the crowds for a little while and to rest. Think about it this way. A properly functioning traffic light at a strategic intersection has a red light to tell the traffic when to stop, as a green light to tell them when to go. Now, some of you need to be taking notes. And success in negotiating that juncture is knowing when to do which, when to stop and when to start. Simply stated, there are times in our lives when we need to learn the value and the appropriateness of stopping as well as the art of starting. And there's certainly two extremes here. I believe God has placed a red light in reaching some worthy destinations along the road to heaven. Think with me for a moment, if you will, about two or three of those. First of all, just knowing God requires slowing down. We might think of that as a yellow light. That's when you're supposed to slow down and 
prepare to stop. And, and sometimes we get so busy in our culture, in our world, that we forget to really spend time getting to know who God is. Man has gone so, so far in engineering skills that supersonic travel is possible in the air and on I-85. And for those who don't want to go that fast, there are a lot of ways to reach a destination in a short time. Have you noticed that we also want our food? We call it fast food for a reason. We want our laundry, we, just about everything in a short time so that we can spend our time keeping busy with other things. Multitasking is something that most people look at as being a wonderful ability that we need to, all of us that we need to develop and, and use in our lives, and yet many times that multitasking approach to life is counterproductive, and I think that some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Don't we miss out on some of the best things in life because of the supersonic lifestyles in which we live? And might not God be one of those things? As I've said many times from this pulpit, the problem with a lot of us, or a lot of people in the world at least, is not that God has reasoned out of their lives, he's crowded out. And even with God's people, sometimes as we talked about last week, there's a, there's a difficulty in establishing the right priorities in our lives. It's not that we're not giving our time to good things, but oftentimes we're using good things as an excuse for not doing better and best things. In fact, for, in order for humans to know the importance of that stillness and rest, God, the Bible says, ceased to work on the Sabbath day. And then he hallowed that day for the duration of the law of Moses, according to Exodus chapters 20, verses 9 through 11. And, and if you think about that, I think that you come to understand the mind of God, at least in the sense of why he used that as one of the Ten Commandments. Watch this carefully. God did not need the rest. That isn't why he stopped on the seventh day of creation and decided to use that day as a day of rest. He knows that man needs a day of rest, at least one a week. And so he set an example, and then he established a law for man to, to follow. It's almost as if God were saying, I'm afraid that you won't notice just a precedent if I just do this myself and set an example. And so I'm going to give you a precept, a law, with some teeth in it. There were some consequences if they violated this very important command. And then when we began turning pages in the Old Testament... We see the children of Israel stopped and complained at the banks of the Red Sea. And some of you, as Bible students, may remember what Moses told them. He said, stand still and behold the salvation of the Lord. The implication of that command was that they were so busy running around and complaining about why God didn't do this and why God did do that, that they needed to stop and realize that God could and would handle that situation. And then he did that in a powerful and a miraculous way by parting the Red Sea. But again, remember on, the, on this side of the Red Sea is where Moses had to tell them, stand still and behold the salvation of the Lord. Just stand still for a minute and watch what God can do, I think is what Moses was telling them. There are times when we need to stand still and behold the salvation of the Lord as well. God just might be providentially operating around us, but we're too involved in the details and the minutia of life. We're so busy that we fail to notice. And then in Psalm 46 and verse 10, we find a very similar message communicated to us. And that's where the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. We need to realize that we need to do that very thing in this fast-paced age in which we live. Folks, I'm telling you this morning that we need to take time in our lives to do some very important things that we may easily overlook. 
We need to take time to, to read the Bible. I mean, not just read, but to study the Bible, to spend serious time in God's Word. We need time to talk with God in prayer. We need to take some time out of our lives to think deeply about divine things. Otherwise, our lives will always just be meringue and no pie, if you know what I mean. We mutter, we sputter, we fume and we spurt. We mumble, we grumble, our feelings get hurt. We can't understand it, our vision grows dim when all that was needed was just a moment with Him. Are you too busy to take a moment out for God? Are you too busy to spend time in quality study and prayer in your life as you grow spiritually in this Christian walk? The next time it seems like you're trying to tread air in a windstorm, and it seems that your life is out of control, I would encourage you, now I don't have a... I don't have a medical degree, but still, spiritually speaking, I would encourage you to take a good dose of Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. Here's the second thing. Understanding God's will involves meditation. Now, I need to stop very quickly. I know most of you know what meditate means, at least biblically speaking. We're not talking about transcendental meditation. We're talking about spiritual meditation. And that just means serious thought and contemplation. Someone has said it this way, you might think of reading as, as eating and meditation as digesting. And that's when we actually digest and assimilate that which we have learned in our study of the Word of God. God's message to man was never intended to read like a dime store novel. You can't just open the Bible and read it like you would your favorite fiction. Because it isn't fiction, it's non-fiction, it's God telling us what to do and how to live our lives. It really is an owner's manual. It really is a roadmap from earth to heaven. And we need to treat it that way. We need to realize that it's also a challenging thing to study God's word. Because sometimes it's very easy to understand. Sometimes it's not so easy. And I think that we all agree that that's true. The wellsprings of truth are not poured out for the casual observer. I believe that's one of the reasons why Paul in his first letter to Timothy was talking about some of the things that Timothy not only needed to remember himself, but then he said, these are things that you need to talk to and to preach and, and to proclaim when you go out to the congregations and tell God's people how that they can grow spiritually as well. And here's what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. It's the first verse I want us to consider. Till I come, he said, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. If you're not spending time reading, Paul is telling Timothy, then your time is not well spent. So give attention to reading and to exhortation or encouragement and also to teaching. You need to be able to benefit others from what you have read, what you have learned in that process. But then down two verses later in verse 15, he says, then meditate. There's the word we're looking for. Meditate on these things. Give yourself completely to them so that your progress may be obvious to all. If you want people to be able to say, Timothy has grown spiritually like no one I've ever met, he said, you're going to have to spend some time thinking seriously and deeply about these things. It isn't just a matter of glancing into the Word of God and saying, I knew that that passage was there, I just forgot where it was, and then moving on with your life. Think deeply. Think seriously about what God has said to you in His Word. Every time you open the Bible, ask yourself, how does that passage apply to me? How can I be a better person? How can I be a more effective servant of God by virtue of the instruction that I have just read? 
Because if you're thinking always in terms of projected application, and that means how that, that applies to someone else's life, God's word is never going to really benefit you in the personal way that God intended. So ask yourself, how does this passage apply to me? How will it help me in my Christian walk? Paul's instructions are so clear to Timothy, and, and when we turn to the Old Testament, we likewise find equally clear instructions. In Psalm 73, for example, by the way, I have a whole sermon on Psalm 73, but I'm not going to present it this morning, much to your relief. But Psalm 73 was a man by the name of Asaph. And there is what we have typically called in biblical studies, Asaph's dilemma. He was having a, a, a conundrum in his life, and it was a spiritual conundrum that he had difficulty being able to unpack and to unravel in his life. Here, here's the problem identified in verse 12 of Psalm 73. These are the words of Asaph himself. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Now he says more about identifying the problem than just verse 12, but that really synopsizes it. Asaph was looking around at the world in which he lived, and he said, here's the problem as I see it. There are wicked people all around who are prospering, and there are righteous, godly people who are suffering. I don't understand the justice of that. I don't understand how that's fair. And the Bible says that Asaph so struggled and wrestled with that problem that to use his words, I think down in about verse 4, he said, my feet almost slipped. That doesn't mean that he was falling down and face planting. It means that he almost lost his faith. His feet slipped spiritually because it was such a a problem for him, and there's still people in our world today who are dealing with the same issue. Why is it that godly people are suffering, and why is it that wicked people are prospering all around us? But then in verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 73 is where Asaph came to his grand conclusion, and here's what he said. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. We're talking about a man agonizing about a spiritual situation in his life, until he finally comes to the right conclusion. Then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end. That is, I understood how things turn out in the end for the wicked. Asaph came to realize that the ledgers of life are not balanced in this world. That is, simply because someone is prospering does not mean that God has favored them and that, that they are pleasing to God. And just because someone happens to be suffering in this world doesn't mean that God has disfavored them and that he is not pleased with them because all godly people have suffered at some time or the other in their lives. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, there's where Asaph starts doing the serious thought. He's now meditating on the situation and then he says, and I beheld therein. I came to understand how it all turns out in eternity. I realized that in the next life is when the ledger will then be equalized. The person who is truly blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. Psalm 1 verse 2. There's a time to read and to study our Bibles. And to gain from the information that is contained in it. And I'm talking about the divine information contained in our Bibles. But there's also a time to stop reading for a while and to seriously and deeply think about what you've read. How that plugs into your life. How it applies to your life. That's the meditation part. Now all of this goes back to our original premise. It takes time to do that. You can't do that during a commercial 
We've got to turn off our devices long enough to spend time listening to God. And spend time thinking about how God's word really does plug into our lives in a practical and meaningful way. Here's a third thing. Finding peace with God and with self and with others needs to come from hours of thinking and negotiating. Paul's instructions in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 reads like this. If it is possible, by the way, I'm, I'm so glad that he included that proviso. He says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Paul is implying that it's not always up to us. Sometimes you can desire to and do all you can to live peaceably with others, and they just won't allow it. We live in a world devoid of peace. We live in a world that's filled with hate and warmongering and, and, and conflict. And so Paul says, but as much as it lies in you, that is to the degree that you can control the situation, live peaceably with all men. I'm telling you folks, doing that takes more than just a frequent review of the passage. You can't just commit that passage to heart, be, memorize it, be able to recite it perfectly word for word, and all of a sudden there's peace in your heart and peace in your life and peace in the world. It takes some application. In fact, I think Romans 14, two chapters later, verse 19, gives us a clue. That's where Paul says, therefore, pursue the things which make for peace. Note that there are some things Paul is saying that must be done, not just thought about, not just meditated on. There are some things that must be done in order for peace to come and stay in our lives. I think that we could say there's a lot of things in our spiritual life just like that. It's one thing to, to learn God's word. It's another thing to meditate on it, see how it applies to our lives. It's another thing to then do something in order to actuate what we have learned Sunday through Saturday, to learn how to do what God would actually have us to be doing in our lives. Here's another passage, I believe, where that same kind of principle applies. In Ephesians 4 and verse 26, is where Paul, writing by inspiration, says, Be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down on your wrath. One translation of Psalm 4, verse 4, is a very similar reading. There's where the psalmist says, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Meditation, again, required. But if we're going to live that kind of life, both Paul and the psalmist says you're going to have to think the right thoughts, and then you're going to have to do the right things. True peace requires more than just, more than just thinking happy thoughts. True peace requires more than just having a smile artificially plastered on your face. The road to peace takes a while to travel. And we have to be patient. That's my message to you this morning. Emergency surgery during a time of high anxiety without checking temperature and blood pressure and x-rays can be time wasted and even a patient lost. You don't have to have a medical degree to know that when someone comes into the hospital or into the doctor's office, you don't just say, hey, you look like you need surgery. There's all kinds of tests that need to be done. There's all kinds of blood work that needs to be taking place. And, and so that all of that information needs to be gathered. And then an informed decision will tell you how best to treat the situation. In a similar way, folks, I'm telling you, there's no microwave approach to growing spiritually. We've got to take the time to approach it the way God would have us to. Which brings me to my final point, and that is reaping a good harvest often takes waiting 
as well as planting, cultivating, and harvesting. That's a biblical principle. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4 and verse 28, For the earth yields crops by itself. By the way, when I read this passage, I'm thinking, Jesus understood that he was talking to people who grew up in agricultural society. And they didn't really need any kind of X and O's chart anywhere to tell them, here's how, you know, growing a crop takes place. But he's trying to get them to understand a spiritual application of what they knew already about planting and harvesting. And that's why he says this, for the earth yields crops by itself. That is, they just come up out of the earth. First, the blade, then the head, and after that, the full grain in the head. He's he's just telling them, agriculturally speaking, if you're going cotton or corn or tomatoes or whatever it is that you're trying to, to, to harvest eventually, you realize that there is a process. You realize that you don't just go throw seed in the ground or put a plant out somewhere and all of a sudden the next day you're able to go and to pick the fruit from it. Any farmer will tell you that it does no good to plant something and then stare. The plant is not going to grow any faster just because you're watching it. And even when it's been properly cultivated, we still have to wait a while for the harvest. I believe that's one of the reasons why in Galatians chapter 6, when Paul says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap, verse 7. Down in verse 9, he then includes this, this proviso, this, this warning, as it were. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap. If you do not lose heart. The problem, I think, with a lot of spiritual warriors is they've grown discouraged. They can't wait for the harvest to come up. And so they decide it's not worth it. And the same is true when it comes to the harvest of souls. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gave the increase. Waiting when it's time to plant, trying to harvest prematurely when it's time to wait for the seed to germinate, is wasting a field that could otherwise bring forth a good and a bountiful crop. I'm wondering this morning, and this is the real question for application. Do you need to go or to stop this morning? Or is it possible that you just need a yellow light? That you need to slow down and spend some time in your life really examining how important your spiritual walk is. Read the signs. Obey the laws, both civil and spiritual. Respond to God's divine instructions and use common sense or wisdom. And don't dare run a sign or a stoplight. The results could be absolutely disastrous. Or on the other hand, maybe you need to be hitting the accelerator. There are times in your life when you need to get out of your recliner and do something. I'm thinking of when Ananias came in to talk to Saul of Tarsus. When Paul is later recounting his conversion experience, he says, here's what Ananias told me. And this is Acts twenty two sixteen. by the way. Ananias said to Saul, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That may be what you need to do this morning. You need to have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ so that his sins, his, his blood can cover all of your sins and you can leave this place as a brand new creature in Christ. If so, then we, we hope that you'll hit the accelerator and do what you need to do this morning. While we stand, while we sing.